0: Father, we are so grateful for the rain. Thank you for sending that. Please send us more. We take that as evidence of your generosity and grace to mankind at large. And we rejoice to know that you are good in so many ways. Please, Father, guide us tonight as we turn to your word and as we consider your ways a little bit further please father dispel both our ignorance and our wrong ideas about who you are and what you're like and what you are doing help us to follow you in our thoughts that we might learn to think more like you and to love the things that you love may your spirit be our teacher Preserve unity and order among us, and may this all happen to the glory of your Son. Amen. Excuse me, my nose is kind of itchy tonight. All right, tonight in our session on Theology 2, which is theology proper and Christology, I'd like to talk about the sinlessness of Christ. We're going to talk about Christ and his temptation. And we're going to talk about Christ and peccability. Somebody asked a few weeks ago, was it possible for Christ to sin? And I said, we will talk about that later. This is the time when we're going to talk about that. I think it was Belen who asked that question, and she's not here, but... Belen, if you listen to this on the tape, this is for you. Okay. What's that? Uh, my... Does Hampton edit these things?
1: Yeah, okay. okay. In the
0: of the thing, last time. Oh, oh, oh. Last time. Yeah. <laughs> now we have to edit all this out. Alright. <laughs> uh, a number of questions come up when we think about Christ and temptation. Did he experience temptation? If he did, how could temptation be compatible with his divine nature? Did his divine nature remove the force of the temptation? Was it too easy? For him. Now, two scriptures are important as we consider these questions. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then James 1.13 comes along and makes things look very difficult. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, if Christ is divine, and he is, and if he cannot be tempted, then what do we do with the statement in Hebrews that says he was in all points tempted as we are? There seems to be a problem here. It is not an unsolvable problem. But he is both our high priest and God. How is it possible that he was both tempted and not tempted? Because that's what these passages seem to say. OK. Part of the solution lies in the meaning of the Greek verb perazo, which is translated to tempt, or the Greek word perasmos, uh, which is the noun temptation. Okay it's a flexible word it can mean several things it can mean to simply attempt something to try to do something it can mean to try or test someone for the purpose of evaluation to see what they will do in a given circumstance it can mean to positively entice or induce someone to sin now you can see this is pretty broad right Now, you can solve part of the difficulty in reconciling those two verses by recognizing (coughs) that Paul and James are using the word differently. However, that doesn't solve everything. Okay? Because another problem remains. Christ was tempted by the devil, wasn't he? And the question is, was that temptation a real test? Did he feel attraction to sin? Can we really say that he has experienced the kinds of temptations that we experience? Because the book of Hebrews says that he has experienced those. And we certainly have been here, haven't we? Now, I think we can gain a lot of perspective on this by looking at the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. Okay? So, listen as I read that. Catch the first line, please. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning you and... In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Notice that Satan quotes scripture. Very interesting. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now, looking at this passage, a number of things become clear. Who initiated the temptation? It was God. The Holy Spirit sent him there to be tempted. Okay? Second point. This is an important point. Christ's fast was real and his hunger was real. There's not a person in this room who could not fast for 40 days. Now, we all need water, can't live without water more than about three days. But we're all capable of fasting for 40 days. And the reason that's important is that Christ was not cheating and using his supernatural powers to sustain himself during that time when he wasn't eating. At the end of those 40 days of fasting, he was really hungry, just like any of us would be. Okay. Now, this is really important also. Every offer that Satan made to Christ addressed a legitimate need that he had. Bread. Christ was hungry, and he needed food. Okay, a spectacular rescue. Satan said, throw yourself down off the pinnacle, because Scripture says the angels will catch you. Okay? that spectacular event which would have been seen by everybody at the temple would have been a great way for Christ to demonstrate his credentials as Messiah. And going even further, Christ had a need to demonstrate his credentials as Messiah. How about the third one, worship? Is it not true that Christ is destined to be worshipped by all the earth? That was part of the Father's plan for him. Satan said, you can have it right now. Now I would suggest that everything that Satan offered to Christ addressed a legitimate need, but there was a problem with what Satan offered in order to meet that need. Okay? Satan did appeal to legitimate needs, but he always offered an illegitimate means of meeting those needs. Can you see what's going on here? Now, this suggests, and this is probably the only original thought I have ever had in the field of theology, so don't miss it, all right? I've never seen this in print, probably somebody thought of it, but if they did, I thought of it independently. A temptation is an opportunity to meet a legitimate need by an illegitimate means. Okay? Think about that. If you understand that this is what a temptation is, then you can begin to see how Christ could be tempted and yet not sin in being tempted. Christ was sinless, and he had real needs, but he never accepted an illegitimate means of meeting those needs, Bob. Well, that's that's exactly the point, okay? The
1: temptation is not
0: sin. Correct. That's that's exactly the point I'm making. Okay, you've got it. Okay. See, many people think that in order to be tempted, you have to be sinful. But it's not true. You don't have to be sinful to be tempted. Christ, as a sinless person, did have needs, and there was nothing wrong with those needs. Okay. Now I don't know that Christ. Uh, scripture does not. And please don't accuse me of blasphemy, but I'm gonna I'm gonna venture an issue onto the table. Okay, did Christ ever hunger for female companionship? Okay, Scripture never says that he does. That he did. We know that he was never married. We know that he was never engaged in sex. We know that he never entertained lust in his head. But if he had ever felt that need, it wouldn't have been an illegitimate need, would it? It'd be part of humanity. Okay. Now, if we understand that a sinless person can be tempted using this definition of temptation, then we can make sense of those two statements that are made about Christ being tempted so that he can identify with our plight and yet, not being sinful.
1: I one said he wasn't
0: well, it says he wasn't tempted by evil. Okay? And here's where I'd go a little bit further. Okay? Well, he
1: was tempted by evil.
0: well, okay. He was never tempted by evil in the sense that he never looked at an evil way of meeting his needs and said, that's what I want. Okay? So you have to put the two of them together. He encountered needs. And he was offered evil means to meet those needs, but he never said, that's the way I'm going to do it. And that, that's how I would put those two passages together. Let's go a little further. Okay, Christ felt the temptations he felt very powerfully, but their power didn't come from any inclination in him towards sin. They simply came from the real needs that they addressed. Now think of a well-behaved, virtuous, hungry little boy walking past a bakery shop window. He can smell the food in there, and there's a pull, but he knows it's wrong for him to steal one of those rolls, and he doesn't do it. Okay? I think you could even argue that in some sense, the temptations that Christ faced were stronger than the temptations we face because of his sinfulness, because he never had that escape valve of giving in to make the temptation go away. Does that make sense? Questions? I hear whispers. Don't be afraid to ask a question. Brooks? You, said sinfulness. Oh, you di- said sinfulness. Oh, did, oh, did I? Oh, no, no, no. I do that sometimes. Okay. Please correct me out loud. I have been known to say that Christ was sinful instead of saying sinless. You've noticed how I get things backwards fairly often. Lord, forgive me. Okay. Um, What value does the temptation of Christ have for us then? Okay. Well... First of all, it shows that temptation does not always imply sinfulness. Now, we know that this was true in every case for Christ, but it can also be true in our cases. Just because you find yourself in a tempting situation doesn't mean you're tempted because you're sinful. Think about Joseph when Potiphar's wife comes in in that see-through negligee the third time and says, Come hither. Joseph turned and ran, and although I I would suggest that, well, let 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 me say this clearly. She was tempting him, and yet I don't think it was because he wanted to sin that that was a temptation. Okay? He ran. Okay? We're not always tempted because we're sinful. Sometimes we're tempted because... External forces place us in situations. Now, if Joseph had gone differently, if he had said, she's come after me four times, I think the fifth time I'm going to give in, then he would have been crossing the line and allowing himself to be tempted by evil in the sense of saying, yeah, I'm going to do it. Okay, That would have been wrong, obviously. Okay, Christ's temptation is a demonstration of his sinlessness, isn't it? I think one of the reasons it's recorded in Scripture is to allow us to see how sinless he was. Now, there was lots more evidence of his (laughs) sinlessness, and we'll look at some of that later. Now did you notice the very last line in this account? Everybody misses this. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. What do you think the angels did? yeah. I think they showed up with two pepperoni pizzas and a large Caesar salad and, you know, a big Dr. Pepper. I mean, not pepperoni pizza. He wouldn't eat that because that was not kosher. But, but, you know, Christ had demonstrated his willingness to submit to the will of the Father and not do what the Father had said he should not do. And having passed those tests, the Holy Spirit said, you got it. And the test was over. And the angels came and met his needs. Now, if you're ever talking to young people or even not so young people about temptation, it's important to remind them that God will meet our legitimate needs in his time, in his way. And when you run into a temptation and something is offered to you, that attracts you because you need what it offers, and yet you know it's the wrong way to fulfill that need. When you say no, you need to also be saying, Father, I said no to that. Would you please meet my need in a way that is pleasing to you? And that kind of of helps to remember that God does address our needs in his time. Okay, the third thing that the temptation does... I think it does prove that he's able to sympathize with our temptations and weaknesses, although he did not feel that inner inclination to sin that we have, okay? I think there was a component of temptation that we experienced that Christ didn't experience. We have tasted the pleasures of sin, haven't we? You know? We men have tasted the pleasures of lust, and most of us have tasted the pleasures of pornography. Many of us have tasted the pleasures of gossip or all kinds of sins. And the experience of that actually sometimes makes a temptation more alluring. Christ has not experienced that. And in that sense, I would argue that we can't say he's experienced every kind of temptation, but I think what Hebrews is saying is that he has experienced the temptations that have to do with unfulfilled needs that have to do with the experience of danger, of fear of persecution and those kinds of things and that does make him qualified to be our great high priest are you with me on this? does it make sense? Pat? okay I
1: have a question even though he has an experience to that we would have because we have experienced the uh, we've actually experienced the sin, he still would have to know fully in and out everything that we're experiencing, or else he would be learning something from us because he's all knowing, right?
0: I, I, yes, I think he's all-knowing, and, and there's this interesting dynamic. Did you ever think about the fact that as a believer? When you sin, the Holy Spirit experiences what you experience. That's a really scary thought. You know, what goes into our eyes, he sees. What goes into our ears, he hears. What we experience physically, the thoughts that we entertain mentally, I think he's aware of those. And maybe that's part of how Christ knows what we've gone through. And certainly in his omniscience, he knows. But but it's more, okay? The, The argument that's made in Hebrews is not just that it's head knowledge, but that it's the knowledge that comes from experience, and that's one of the reasons that he took on human flesh. Okay. Now, here's an interesting one. I think Christ's temptation, if we understand what temptation is properly, shows that believers are not innately unable to resist temptation. If we understand that when we are tempted it's because we have a legitimate need for which an illegitimate solution is being offered, we can step back and say, you know what? There's nothing wrong with me having my need. What's wrong would be me taking that solution They say, Father, I don't want that, but I do need a solution. Please help me. I think it also provides a model for the use of the word of God in temptation. Huh? Oh. Go ahead. Okay. Uh,
1: my brain's not not working correctly. Is it double negative I'm not understanding? Not innately unable.
0: Yeah, we're not unable to resist temptation. Not okay. We we are able to resist temptation. Only because
1: we're believers.
0: Yes. Absolutely. That's why I said as believers as, as Okay. Humans, we are absolutely as humans. Innately, Absolutely as fallen humans without being regenerated without the resources of the indwelling holy spirit we can't really resist temptation but as believers we can resist it now we'll never resist every temptation we'll never do it perfectly in mortal life but we can gain a measure of victory you know 1 Corinthians 10:13 no temptation has overtaken you but what is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear but he will with the temptation also provide a way through it. Okay, We do have resources and Christ provides a model for using those resources. And I think a lot of the time the resource is simply reciting the word of God to yourself or praying back to God his promises in prayer. Somehow that takes the fangs out of temptation. And I think we've said this already. Christ's experience of temptation qualifies him and motivates him to help us in our times of temptation and weakness. Tommy?
1: Would, would you go to the point to say that every temptation you've been faced around was given to you? The reason I say that is, I get yeah. to say gossip about my brother to present myself a little higher Yeah, well,
0: I would would say that you have a legitimate need for a proper self-esteem, okay? And I'm not talking about the pop psychology esteem movement. I'm talking about Romans 12, let every man think about himself soberly. Sometimes it's hard to track back temptations to a legitimate need. Sometimes it's a long, circuitous path, because... We have been so twisted by sin that we've been seeking the wrong solutions for our needs for so long we don't even know what the real needs are. But I do think ultimately everyone can be traced back to a legitimate need, off the top of my head. Okay. That, that, that's worth some expo- exploration, Tommy. That's a good question. Okay, any other questions about Christ and temptation before we move on to Christ and sinlessness? Yes, sir.
1: You talk about that we are, a Christian is able to resist temptation.
0: I don't mean every temptation or perfectly. I mean that we have resources to apply. But go ahead. If
1: we have resources to apply, Mm -hmm. as as Corinthians tells us that we do, Mm -hmm. then when we fail, we basically didn't apply the resources.
0: Yeah, I would say that.
1: Why, 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 do, why do, do you and the common belief is that uh, a person cannot go through life without
0: failing to apply the resources? Cannot go through life without. Fi- oh. Well, I think the persistent indwelling sin nature means that we never fully take advantage of the resources that God has provided to us. So we have
1: a persistent indwelling Holy Spirit.
0: Absolutely. And okay. we we quench him persistent
1: indwelling sin nature overcomes the persistent indwelling Holy Spirit?
0: When we quench him or when we what's the other word? When we mm-hmm. grieve him? Absolutely. You know, there's so many places in the New Testament where we are commanded to do the godly thing. We were we're told to walk in the Spirit, um You know, in Ephesians, in Galatians, you go to First Peter I'm sorry, Second Peter, chapter one, at the beginning of that chapter, Peter says that God has provided us with everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ, and then he gives us command that says, Therefore add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self control. And I I think really what it comes down to, and maybe this is the point that you're making, is perhaps it's not, but it's the point I'm making which is that God has provided us with the resources and yet we need to exercise effort in cooperation with the Holy Spirit in order to put those into action. Would you... Do you see where I'm going?
1: Yeah, but the piece piece that that I'm prolonging
0: the the
1: dialogue is the The teaching which you are espousing that says uh, you are doomed to fail.
0: I would say we are doomed to fail at times. Yes.
1: So do you have a verse for that? Paul's Paul's statement. Paul says. Paul Paul says that that was a struggle and that he kept doing what he could, you know, what what he knew he shouldn't do, but he did anyway. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah, the, the, the struggle, the struggle goes on. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the, the flesh. Struggle.
1: I'm not, I'm not arguing. Struggle. The struggle. Okay. Only thing is that that it appears to be an excuse. Well, I just blew it, even though Corinthians tells me I didn't have to blow it.
0: Well, I, I don't think it's ever an excuse. Okay. Sin is never excused by saying that I'm sinful. But I think the testimony of Scripture is clear that none of us will ever live a sinful li- sinless life until we are glorified. I do not believe in Christian perfectionism at all. Andrew?
1: Well, I mean, it's true that I guess one of the struggles... Is-
0: Well, and the question question needs to be asked, is a life lived while making an effort to walk godly with the resources that God provides, with a large measure of success, is that not far better and far more glorifying to God than a believer who just says, I'm doomed to fail, therefore I'm not going to try? I think the answer is absolutely yes, is it not? He calls us to exert effort. He tells us that when we do so, we glorify him. We enhance his reputation. We attract others to Christ. We build our reward. We edify the church. All those things are important. So when you say doomed to fail, I hesitate to use that terminology because I don't think it's about total failure just because there are times when we sin Clayton
1: I think that in Hebrews 12 when uh, when he talks about how as sons we are uh, chastened mm-hmm. by the Lord and God uh, you sovereign know, God's sovereignty in our lives and us exerting our effort and our own wills how that's going to work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, really be, I don't think we can really explain that. But I think that and he basically tells us, I mean, if, if we're going to get, he's going to allow us to fail, I think, in, cer- in certain times so that we can be disciplined. Sure. And that's,
0: just part of that's part of sanctification. I would agree. I would agree. All right, let's move on. Let's see how far we can get into the next topic. Okay, let's talk about Christ's sinlessness. I think there's a lot of evidence in Scripture, obviously, of his sinlessness. I put some of it in a chart, and we'll go through this very quickly. You can look at this in your notes if you like. Christ is called the Holy One. He's sinless because he's divine. Christ challenged people. Which of you convicts me of sin? Of course, nobody could. He said, I have kept my Father's commandments. And indeed he did. There's no record in Scripture of Christ ever making a sacrifice for sin, even though the law required that if a Jew had sinned, he should make such a sacrifice. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says he committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. He didn't sin in word or deed. Even outsiders, Roman officials, the thief on the cross, the Roman centurion, all testified to his sinlessness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, it stated that in him there is no sin. You could find lots more evidence. It's apparent that Christ did not sin. But then the question comes, could he have sinned? There are basically two views on this issue, and I will present mine, and you don't... I'm sorry, I will present both, and I will tell you which one I prefer. You don't have to agree with me. Okay? This is normally expressed in Latin. Passe non pecare. It was possible for him not to sin. Or, non passe pecare. It was impossible for him to sin. In the first case, Christ could sin, but he chose not to. In the second case, Christ was unable to sin. Okay, They're not really the same. These are the two views that are taken. Now, there are respectable theologians who hold both views. Let me give you a quote from Charles Hodge, who holds the <laughs> passe non peccare view, the view that was Possible for Christ not to sin. He said if he was a true man, he must have been capable of sinning. That he did not sin under the greatest provocation. That when he was reviled, he blessed. When he suffered, he threatened not. That he was dumb as a sheep before her, his shearers is held up to us as an example. Temptation implies the possibility of sin if from the constitution of his person it was impossible for Christ to sin and his temptation was unreal and without effect and he cannot sympathize with his people. That's what Hodge said. Now here are the main points that he's making. He says that temptation implies peccability. He says that identification with human's plight, humanity's plight requires peccability. He says that true humanity requires peccability. Anybody have any comments? Peckability is the ability to sin. Okay? The ability to sin. Well, I believe we've already refuted the first one. Temptation does not require peccability. You can be tempted without necessarily being able to sin. I think we've already suggested that B is not true either. Even if Christ was unable to sin, that doesn't mean he he couldn't identify with us because he still could be tempted as we are. All right? And I think the third one, C, that true humanity requires peccability, is patently false because... In the future, when we are glorified, we'll be more human than we are now. And will we be able to sin? We won't. Okay?
1: What do mean, more human?
0: Well, we will be bearing the image of God in the way that we were designed to. Oh. And that's what we are made for. Okay? Uh, Pat? No, this is oh, okay. Bob?
1: what of adam before the fall what's that what of adam before the fall was he adam was
0: obviously peccable now he, w- he yeah, was he was he was innocent and he was sinless but he was peccable he was obviously capable of sinning because he did sin these are hard concepts aren't they Let me present to you the flip side, and then we can talk about it more if you want. Okay? I would argue that the correct understanding is that Christ could not sin because he was one person with two natures. His divine nature did not allow sin because deity can't sin, and his human nature was strengthened by being joined to the divine nature, much as a piece of spaghetti... Glued to a steel girder is just as strong as the steel girder. Alright? Let me, let, me let me show you how. That, that was sort of my quick sh- shot at it. Let me show you how it's often argued. Okay? The argument for impeccability. Okay? First statement Christ is immutable. As the second person of the Trinity, he is immutable. He was sinless and holy before the Incarnation and had to be sinless and holy after the Incarnation. Second argument, Christ had two wills, his human will and his divine will. But his human will was always subservient to the Father's prescriptive will and to his revealed will. He did what Scripture said was right to do, And he did what the Father told him to do. Since it was the Father's will that he be without sin, Christ, in submission to the Father, could not choose to sin.
1: But he was still tempted.
0: He was tempted in the sense of encountering opportunities, but not in the sense that he ever wanted to fulfill his needs in wrong ways. Okay? Reason number three, Christ's deity was incapable of sin. Although his humanity was potentially capable of sin, the joining of the two natures in one person rendered sin impossible for him. Glenn, you're shaking your head. Oh, okay. Um, Now let me tell you how another theologian, this one, who holds the impeccability view, states it. This is very nice. I think it's very clear. Christ, while having a peccable human nature in his constitution, was an impeccable person. Impeccability impeccability characterizes the God-man as a totality, while peccability is a property of his humanity. When you put two natures together in one person, you end up with an impeccable person. And he was, therefore, impeccable. He could not sin. That's the, that's the direction I see the evidence leading us to. Okay? I think the arguments for his peccability fail, and the only alternative is impeccability. And I think that fits the biblical evidence well. Although we may see a difficulty in understanding how an impeccable person could substitute for fallen humanity before God, God doesn't seem to see any difficulty here, and it's Him, whom the saving work of Christ must satisfy, not us. Okay? That sounds like a cheap shot, but I think it's true. Vicky?
1: Um, in saying that, could you say that in this humanity?
0: I think he was weak in his humanity, yes. I think we see his weakness many times. In fact, I think he intentionally avoided exercising his divine powers in order to live in weakness as we live. You know, an example would be the weakness of his hunger at the temptation, um, the weakness of his sorrow when John the Baptist was executed, things like that. But go ahead, Vicky, is there more? Yeah. I I I don't want to say that Christ did not suffer the things that come with humanity. But I still do think that is true because he was one person with two natures. There was, in a sense, a way in which his divine attributes, some of them, affected his humanity, and I think this is one of them. Bob, were you going to say something? No, I, I, I,
1: can, I can go with it.
0: Okay. It just seems much more difficult to go the other way.
1: I have to have that, that portion that says that his human side was peckable.
0: Was what? I have
1: to have that side, though, that says... His human
0: side was peckable? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't yeah, think I that anybody who holds to impeccability would say that his human nature in isolation was impeccable. I think it has to do with the one person with two natures permanently joined together. Clayton?
1: I think, I think that there's just no way that it was ever going to happen, but it's just like, it's hard to put, it something to say that something was impossible for God. You know, that like he was impossible for God. Well,
0: oh, well, there are things that are impossible for God. Okay? God cannot sin. It's impossible for God to act contrary to his nature. There there really are things that are impossible to God, but the things that are impossibilities for God are not weaknesses. They're not failures. They're not lacks. They're just the opposite. The fact that God cannot go contrary to his nature is one of the glories of God. So, you know, you, you can play games with words. Could God make a rock so big he couldn't lift it? You know, that's just foolishness.